Surely all of us know that yesterday was Halloween. Right? And I want to thank those who participated on behalf of the church in our area, our booth that we sponsored for the Halloween bash up at the square. I think we had to be the most popular booth that was there. I heard numerous times we gave out handfuls of candy as opposed to single pieces of candy. One man said, I heard him telling one of our ladies that uh, half of the candy his child had in her bucket was from us. So uh, I'm thankful for that. Uh, We had an appearance by a flying monkey from Oz and by Dorothy, was working at our booth as well. Uh, Dorothy's aged just a little bit, but not a lot. A minion was there, a bumblebee was there, even Gru showed up. And uh, so we had a good time, and I appreciate everybody doing that. Even more importantly for us than yesterday being Halloween is the fact that yesterday was Reformation Day. Many of you might not even know that. It is. It was Reformation Day. And it signifies the fact that 498 years ago, It was on that date that our brother, Martin Luther, nailed 95 theses to the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. And I won't tell you what all the 95 points were. Aren't you glad for that? Hey, you you can complain about me being long, but I have never had a 95-point sermon. The main point of Luther's contention with the Roman Catholic Church of his day, of which he was a part, and a monk, and a priest, was their acceptance and promotion of the selling of what was called indulgences. The Pope at the time was wanting to finance the remodeling of St. Peter's Basilica. And so he sent out his priests and his bishops and his clerics and most notably he sent out uh, the most powerful evangelist at his disposal, a man by the name of Johann Tetzel, and he sent him out selling indulgences, which was basically the selling of salvation. The Roman Catholics believe in purgatory. And if you were the very best Roman Catholic, you might spend 10,000 years in purgatory paying for your sins, purifying you before you could go to heaven. So Tetzel went out and he proclaimed to the flock all over Europe, that if you will make a sizable donation to this remodeling project, then it will guarantee that your deceased loved one who is now suffering in purgatory will immediately be set free and go right into heaven. 
Or if you would rather, if you will make a sizable donation to this building project, if you want it to apply to you when you die, you won't go to purgatory, but you could go straight to heaven. And this was nothing less than uh, materialism and robbing from the poor to make the rich richer. And at its worst, it was heresy. Horrible heresy. As if salvation could be bought. I would remind you that the Scripture is clear that it cannot. Remember Simon the magician in the book of Acts. Peter's response to his proposal to buy the Holy Spirit was, let your money perish with you. And so Luther protested this and it led to what we would know as the Protestant Reformation. From that, the two biggest issues that were separated over The two biggest issues of contention were in regards to the subject of salvation. How is a person made right with God? And authority. What is the final authority for the people of God, for the church? And of course, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and the other reformers were all agreed that Salvation or being made right with God is not the result of faith plus works, which was the Catholic teaching and it remains that way even today. Uh, They would stress the necessity of faith, but when you look at it, it's not faith in Christ that they stress, but faith instead in their own sacraments. Faith in baptism. Faith in the Mass. Faith in last rites. Faith in marriage. Faith in the sacraments of the church. And Luther and those like him argued vehemently and rightly, scripturally, that salvation is by faith alone. That we are justified or made right with God through faith in what Christ has done alone. We could add nothing to it. And when it came to the authority of the church, what they were rebelling from was this notion that the Bible was an authority for the church, but an equal and maybe even greater authority for the church was the tradition of the church. The tradition of the church being what the Pope said. Which in most cases contradicted the Word of God. And so they again argued rightly and biblically that the authority for us as believers and a church is the Bible alone. It teaches us what we're to believe and what we're to be and what we're to do as the church and as Christians. So this Protestant Reformation was a protest of a false church and a breaking away from it. And it was the reformation of the true church. There are many results from it. I'll give you just a few for which we should be thankful. If there had been no Protestant Reformation, we would not have the Bible in our own language. For more than a thousand years, the Roman Catholic Church had intentionally kept its people 
in the darkness from what the Word of God said because they would not allow it to be translated in any language other than Latin. And interestingly, did you know up until the late 1960s, it was illegal for Catholic churches to do their Mass in anything other than Latin. Meaning that the vast majority of the people never had a clue what was being spoken at their most important service. As the result of the Reformation, the Word of God was translated into German and into French and praise God into English. Another result was the priesthood of all believers, which we as Baptists count as one of our bedrock beliefs. Do you know why you don't come confess your sins to me? And then I pray to God on your behalf? Because you don't need me. You have Christ. And He's far better. We don't have a recognized priesthood any longer because there no longer remains a need for a human, merely human mediator between us and God. Jesus is the priest, the high priest, to have ended all priests. And from the youngest believer in here, kids and young people to the oldest, I want you to know that through Christ, you have access to the very throne of God. You can speak with Him any time that you want to. And if you don't have that access, you can through repentance and faith on Christ. Selfishly, I would add that one of the results was that clergy were able to get married. And on behalf of one clergy, I'm really thankful that they got that right. In honor of those who came before us, and in particular, in honor and memory of the man that God primarily used to get it started, our brother Martin, I want to read the two verses that were central in his understanding of these things and what would become the heart of the Protestant Reformation and what remains the heart of the Gospel today. Romans 1.16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, And also to the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. That is, the way to be made right with God is is revealed to be a matter of faith at the beginning, faith in the middle, and faith all the way to the end. Nothing else. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, let's get started on our message for today. I bet you thought that was going to be the message for the day. And in my message, I have 94 points today. Not 95, but 94. Turn with me to John chapter 7, verse 14. The subject of John chapter 7, which we've been in now three Sundays, 
is responding to Jesus. There are two ways that one can respond to Jesus. Just two. One can respond to Jesus by receiving Him through faith. Faith alone. Or, if one does not respond to Him through faith, one responds to Jesus by rejecting Him. In the first 24 verses of John 7, which we're going to finish up today, God willing, are all about this response of rejection. So we've been looking at what rejecting Jesus looks like. And we've seen, and are in the midst of seeing, that rejecting Jesus can come in at least four forms. First, we've seen that rejecting Jesus can come in the form of unbelief. And we saw that in the unbelief of the brothers of Jesus who did not believe that He was the Christ and the Son of the living God. They did not understand who He was and therefore they did not understand what He had come to do. We've also seen that rejecting Jesus can come in the form of hatred. And we've seen that in the hatred of the world. The world responded to and continues to respond to Jesus with hatred. Because Jesus has been sent by His Father to proclaim the truth. And a part of the truth is that we as people of the world are sinful. And our deeds are evil apart from Christ. Hating Jesus isn't merely saying, I hate Jesus. But if we don't love Jesus in a way that makes us live for Jesus, We really hate Jesus. We have also seen that rejection can come in the form of opinions. And we saw that in the opinions of the crowd in this passage. They had a lot of opinions about who Jesus was. But we don't need opinions. Opinions about Christ will send you to hell. We need the truth. And we need to embrace the truth. The truth about Christ that He has revealed of Himself. That He is the Messiah and the Son of God. That He is Lord and Savior. The truth that we find in His Word. And then fourth, we started to see two weeks ago, and we'll continue to see, we'll really see it today, that rejecting Jesus can come in the form of conspiracy. That's what we're getting to this morning. So to do that, I want us to go back to verse 14, which we've already covered, and read down to verse through verse 16, which we covered last time as well, and then we'll pick up fresh with verse 17. Verse 14 says, When the festival was already half over, it's talking about the festival of booths, the festival of tabernacles, Jesus went up into the temple complex and He began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, How does he know the Scriptures, since he hasn't been trained? Jesus answered them, My teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. Now with those verses in our minds fresh, 
They provide for us a context for where we pick up today, verse 17. Jesus said there, if anyone wants to do His will, if anyone wants to do God's will, he will understand whether the teaching is from God or if I'm speaking on my own. Understanding. Understanding God. Knowing God. Knowing about God. Knowing the things of God. Even knowing the Word of God begins with desire. That's what Jesus is getting at in verse 17. Legitimate desire. Sincere desire. That is, if if we want to know God and know His truth and know His Word, then it always begins with a sincere desire on our part to do so. It won't be accomplished apart from that. And it's the same way with discernment which Jesus references here. If one has this desire, this sincere desire to do the will of God and to know it, that person will be able to understand whether one is speaking on behalf of God or whether one is simply speaking from their own ideas and on their own behalf. And that issue here was how people felt about Jesus. He was saying, hey, the way you'll be able to know whether I speak from God as I say I do, or if I'm merely speaking on my own, is if you have this legitimate desire to do the will of God. If that's the case, I would ask you and ask all of us, do you have this kind of desire? Do you really want to do God's will? I mean, every day, are you thinking that? Hey, today, I want to do God's will. Today, I want to live in God's will. Today, I want to live in such a way intentionally that is in line with what God has revealed to us and has revealed to me in His Word. Do you have that legitimate desire to do and to know God's will. I'm sure that for most, if not all of us, we do. But we'd equally have to admit that there are times where that desire wanes, doesn't it? That desire is not always equally intense. And so maybe you've had it, or maybe you have a portion of it, but maybe the issue today is not that you completely lack this desire, but your desire for this isn't what it has been in the past. Or what it should be. And even now, we should be praying, Oh God, be merciful and gracious to me. And give me this sincere desire to know Your will, which is really a desire to know His Word, because that's where we find His will. Give me this sincere desire to know it, And to do it. And if what I'm saying right now doesn't resonate with you at all, then your prayer ought to be, and and I'll pray even now on your behalf, that uh, God would work in your heart in such a way as to bring you to faith in His Son 
Because the heart that does not feel anything at the mention of this is clearly an unregenerate heart. And you need the power of God to transform your life. Just like these people here, the Jews, the religious leaders, and the nation that they represented had no real heart for Christ. Verse 18. Jesus said here, the one who speaks for himself seeks his own glory. That is, if if you have one who's merely speaking from himself on behalf of himself, what's really at the root of that, his his real mission in life is his own glory, being glorified personally. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him, he who seeks the glory of God, is true. And there is no unrighteousness in Him. At this point in the passage, we come back to something that has been the theme uh, or a major theme of all of John chapter 7. That theme being the mission of Jesus. And earlier Jesus has referred to His mission in this encounter and in this passage by referencing His hour. His time had not yet come. And it was a reminder to us that the mission of Christ was to come and die. And in so doing, to accomplish the will of God. Also earlier in John chapter 7, we've seen Jesus refer to His mission as being to proclaim the truth of God. To testify on God's behalf. Here, Jesus comes back to that mission and He states it in a different way. And what he says is, my mission is to glorify God. My mission is to glorify my Father who has sent me. And to glorify God means to point people to God's glory. To help people see the perfections and the wonder and the awesomeness of God. Notice that Jesus did not say, my mission is to glorify myself. But instead, my mission is to glorify my Father who sent me. What Jesus was after, contrary to what His brothers earlier in the passage thought He should have been after, what Jesus was after was heavenly recognition. Now now go back, if you can, in your minds to what Jesus' brothers thought He should be after. What kind of recognition did they think He should be seeking? Public recognition. Public approval. The approval of the crowds. But Jesus here is simply saying, what I'm after is not the applause of men, but the applause of God. So, He spoke for God. He spoke the truth. As He says here in verse 18, He spoke the truth because... He was the truth. He could speak nothing else. And He did it not in unrighteousness. He said there's no unrighteousness in the one who seeks the glory of the one who sent Him. Meaning that Jesus wasn't a hypocrite. Like the religious leaders that He was talking with. Jesus lived a life that was consistent with the message that He proclaimed. Not so with the religious leaders. 
Jesus said about them one time, you're always placing burdens on the people's back that you're unwilling to carry yourself. You're hypocrites. And we'll keep coming back to their hypocrisy. Not only was Jesus speaking the truth in righteousness in contrast with the Jewish religious leaders, but it was in contrast with the very people that they accepted. I want you to think about the sad irony of this. Here is Jesus, one that their very Scriptures foretold. And He spoke the message of God like no one ever before. And He vindicated that what He was saying was true by His signs. And He lived a life that was spotless. And they wouldn't accept Him. All the while, they were real quick to accept false messiahs. They had before Jesus and they would immediately after Jesus. People whose message was unimpressive, lacked authority, people whose message was not scriptural, and people whose lives were far out of balance with the message that they proclaimed. People who, unlike Jesus, sought their own glory, sought public recognition, like so many people today, who claim to represent God. Certainly, I'm not the only one who is able to see, and I know this, I know there are many of you that can see this, that among those who claim to speak for the Lord, there is an epidemic of those who do not seek the glory of God, but their own personal glory. They don't speak for Him. They don't speak from Him. They don't speak in line with His Word. They don't speak the truth. They don't speak with lives that match up with what they speak. How many times are people willing to keep sending their money to religious leaders who were married 12 times and have been involved in 50 public scandals having to do with their sexual immorality or their lack of ethics? How many times? Our mission is to glorify God, not self. Our mission is to speak for Him, to speak from Him, to speak the truth, to do it in righteousness, to do it with lives that line up with the message that we proclaim. Going back several years, five years at least, when we started talking about what our mission is, and we we talked about it in terms of glorifying God by making disciples, We said, what would a mature disciple look like? Well, I'll tell you exactly what a mature disciple looks like, which is the aim for all of us. A mature disciple is going to be a witness with the way they live so that they can be a witness to the gospel with their mouths, with their words. That's what a mature disciple, one who speaks and lives the truth and the gospel. Our mission is to seek Heavenly recognition. But far too often, 
And, and I could amen this or owe me this myself far too often. We are wanting people to tell us well done instead of God. And we're wanting people to tell us how well pleased they are with us rather than God when the only thing that should be of concern to us as the people of God is to hear those words from God one day. Well done. You've been faithful. I am very pleased with what you've done. Look at verse 19. Didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law? Why then do you want to kill me? Jesus is making the point here that the Jews, the very Jews who were persecuting Him, seeking to kill Him, were full of unrighteousness themselves. They wanted to kill Jesus because He had broken their interpretation of God's law. All the while, they were involved in a conspiracy to break the revealed law of God. They were involved or about to be involved in something that would, without question, violate the teachings of the man that they looked up to the most. That man being Moses. Jesus had already referenced their wanting to kill Him in this passage, and so He comes back to it here. And it takes us back, this conspiracy of the Jews. This is why I'm saying that rejecting Jesus can come in the form of a conspiracy. This conspiracy of theirs to kill Jesus goes all the way back to chapter 5. Do you remember the story of the man that had been paralyzed for almost 40 years, for 38 years? And he was there at that pool, and they believed that an angel would come and stir the waters, and the first one that came down and got in the water could uh, be healed. Now, that may have not been the case, but they thought that way. And Jesus comes, and He asks this man, this one man out of all of them, would you like to be healed? And he says, well, I don't have anybody to put me in the water. And Jesus said, look, I I don't need angels to stir up the water. Would you like to be healed? Oh, yes, I'd like to be healed. Get up and walk. And he did. Well, it happened to be on a Sabbath day. And the Jewish religious leaders could care less that this man had been healed. But they were steamed about Jesus having done it. On the Sabbath, and from that day, chapter 5, verse 18 says, they planned to kill, they conspired to kill Jesus. And it makes them hypocrites. Their hypocrisy is seen in the fact that they were trying to kill Jesus for breaking the law, when all the while their conspiracy to kill Jesus was breaking the law. Right? Did we get that? Look at verse... 20. You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who wants to kill you? So they charged Jesus with being demon-possessed. This wasn't the first time that they had done it, or wasn't the only time that they did it. You remember another time Jesus was casting out demons, and they said, here's how you do it. You've got demons. Now that makes sense, right? Jesus showed the irrationality of, of that whole line of thinking. When he said, now, why would Satan work against himself by casting out demons? But those who reject Jesus have never been uh, noted for their rational, logical thinking. Just as the case here. 
Basically, what, what it boiled down to was this. Whenever Jesus did or said something that they didn't like or understand, they accused Him of having a demon. we got to be careful of this too. People say something that we don't like or do something that we don't like. And we may not say they have a demon, but we'll say something like this. They're crazy. I mean, they're They're nuts. Maybe it was here that the crowd and the Jewish religious leaders were in denial. And you know, denial is a defense mechanism that that all of us can have and many of us are still prone to. When we're confronted with our sin, we begin to defend ourselves irrationally. And the reason is it's hard to see our sin. It's hard to see how we could be involved in any conspiracy against Jesus. It's very hard for us to see our own hypocrisy. Think about it. Do you ever criticize people for doing something that you do? Or something very much like what you do? Maybe you do it worse. It's hard for us to see our hypocrisy. It's hard for us to see the severity of our sin. If they weren't in denial here, then they were just flat out lying. We're not trying to kill you, they said, when we know that they had already conspired to do so. Uh, Maybe they were lying thinking, hey, we can fool Him. But you can't fool Jesus, can you? We've seen this numerous times already in John. Verse 21, Jesus said, I did one work, and you're all amazed. Now, they weren't amazed that Jesus could heal that man. But they were amazed that He did heal him on the Sabbath day. Speaking of proving the severity of their lost condition, remember that story once again. Here's a guy who had been completely paralyzed for almost 40 years. And he's walking in front of them and they make no mention of it whatsoever. Immediately all they can talk about is how wrong Jesus was to kill him or how wrong Jesus was to heal him on the Sabbath day. Being lost is awful. It is dark, it is hard, it is dead, it's awful, proves the severity. In the same way, all the reasons that people reject Jesus for, all the reasons that offend people about Jesus, they're merely more proofs of how severe our lost condition is. Verse 22, consider this, Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but it came from the fathers. We know it came from Abraham, from God. And you'll circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Do you see the point Jesus was trying to make? They wanted to kill him because he worked on the Sabbath, which wasn't a violation of God's law, but theirs. Jesus makes the point that you do allow some work on the Sabbath. Jewish males were to be circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. And if the eighth day happened to fall on a Sabbath day, then it was well within their law for that Jewish baby boy to be circumcised on the eighth day, which was a work, to be exact. He's showing there were exceptions to the law. And here comes Jesus along, and He's healed a man on the Sabbath, which is far more significant and beneficial than circumcision. And they want to kill Him for it. Verse 23. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well 
on the Sabbath? Can you see the hypocrisy of their conspiracy? And all of those that would conspire against Jesus and reject Him, there's hypocrisy in it, there's inconsistency in it, there's insanity in it. All of it is that way. It's illogical. And I say it's inconsistent and insane and illogical and hypocritical because the very reasons for which people reject Jesus, they will excuse those same things in themselves and in others that they readily accept. And it's a reminder to us here that it's not just that people don't receive Jesus. They won't. You get that? It's not just that people don't receive Jesus. They won't receive Jesus. Now verse 24, to wrap it up. Jesus says, Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. He speaks more of their hypocrisy here. And he says you're hypocrites because you judge externally. You judge on appearances. And those that judge in this way, they will judge themselves externally and it always works out to their advantage, right? I look like I'm a righteous person, so I must be righteous. I know how to walk or act the righteous way in front of everybody, so I must must be righteous. But the hypocrisy of it all is seen in that while they judge themselves externally to their advantage, they judge Jesus and others externally to their disadvantage. And we do that. We'll look at other people without ever breaking the surface and we've made negative judgments about them. It's always to their disadvantage, to their disfavor, while at the same time using the same standard of judgment to make ourselves feel better about me. They focused on the letter of the law, not the spirit of God's law. And in this case, they didn't even keep the letter of the law because they were wanting to murder Jesus. They emphasized their laws, not God's. Their hypocrisy led to this conspiracy. Verse 24 speaks about judging, doesn't it? Judgment. And it says that we're to judge, doesn't it? What does it say? Judge according to righteous judgment. But the kind of judging they were doing, external, based on appearances, judgment, was the exact kind of judgment that Jesus and the Bible condemns. Do you know what? I read this recently. The most well-known verse in the Bible in the world is no longer John 3.16. It's Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. How about that? Now, why would that be the most well-known verse? Because everybody uses it to justify themselves and what they think and how they want to live. Don't you judge me. The Bible says you can't. But the Bible never says that we can't judge other people. It just speaks against a type of judging other people. This type of judging, external, appearance-based judging. Samuel went to Jesse's home to anoint a king and God told him when he picked David last, you look at the outside, but I look at the heart. We're to be like God. We're to judge like Him. 
And God is a righteous judge, and therefore we're to practice righteous judgment, not self-righteous judgment. You know what self-righteous judgment is? I can't believe they are doing that. And all the while our opinion of ourself is going tick, 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 tick. We even pick people out intentionally that are worse than we are so that we can feel better about number one. We are able through the Word of God to practice righteous judgment because it's there that we find God's judgment. And when we speak God's judgment in a righteous way, not a self-righteous way, we are not being judgmental. We are not violating Matthew 7.1, but they were. So we see here that the Jews responded to Jesus with a conspiracy. They rejected Him in this way. Conspiracy against Jesus is obviously a form of rejection. Now, you may think I'm good on these. I'm not in any conspiracy to kill Jesus. But, folks, there is still a conspiracy to kill Jesus. And I'm not talking about crucifying Him again on the cross. Jesus died once and He lives forevermore. Amen? But there is a conspiracy to kill the name of Christ. There's a conspiracy to kill the true identity of Christ. There's a conspiracy to kill the Word of Christ, the Gospel of Christ, the message of Christ, and those who proclaim His message, as we saw in the video earlier today. There's a conspiracy to kill the judgments of Christ, the influence of Christ, the witness of Christ, the church that belongs to Christ, the miracles of Christ, the authority of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ, the truth of Christ. There remains a conspiracy against Jesus today. And I would ask you, are you involved in this conspiracy against Jesus? And right off the bat, we'll answer no. But I want to ask that question in another way to help us get to our own heart. Are you gathering people to Jesus and drawing people to Him? Are you? By the way that you live and the things that you say? Are you gathering and drawing people to Christ? I ask this because Jesus said, you're either gathering or you're scattering. And if you're not gathering people to Christ and to the kingdom, you are scattering people away from it. And therefore, you're involved in a conspiracy, whether you know it or not, whether you deny it or not. And that conspiracy to kill Jesus in that way means that your response is to reject Him. Friend, how are you responding to Jesus today? You are responding. You're either rejecting Him or receiving Him. Don't reject Him. Turn from your rejection of Christ. This is repentance. Receive Him. And the way that we do it is through faith. Faith in who He is and what He's doing. We're all responding to Jesus. Our duty is to be responding to Jesus in the right way today. Would you stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes?